0: Hey, everybody. I'm Eric Mueller, and welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, a podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Today's guest is a former Green Beret scuba medic with the U.S. Army's 7th Special Forces Group. Storm Cunningham is passionate about the revitalization of our planet. We'll get into what revitalization is later on. Storm Cunningham is an expert regarding sustainability, community revitalization, regional regeneration, economic development, and historic preservation. Currently, he is the executive director of Reconomics Institute, the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals. This society helps ensure that communities worldwide have certified revitalization and resilience facilitators. Storm tracks the latest trends and techniques in urban and rural regeneration, natural resource restoration, and resilience worldwide. This expertise enables him to effectively educate leaders all over the planet. From 2006 to 2009, Storm was a distinguished visiting professor at Seneca College in Canada. A fun fact is this is Canada's largest college, and it's located in Toronto. From 1996 to 2002, he was director of strategic initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute, a 60-plus-year-old association of 14,000 architects, engineers, contractors, and manufacturers. Storm is still an avid scuba diver to this day. He enjoys riding his motorcycle, and he's also authored three books— I'm eager to share with you the message that we have prepared for you today. Listen closely for Storm's tips on how you can be more successful in your own life while preserving the planet at the same time. Let's head on over to the interview. Welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, a podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock stay driven towards success. Today we're lucky to have Storm Cunningham on the show. Storm, how are you doing today?
1: Just wonderful. Thanks for having me on your show, Eric.
0: Yeah, thanks for making the time. Really appreciate you going off your regular schedule to record this. It means a lot to me. And, and So you are the executive director of Reconomics Institute. Is that is that right? That's it. Would you mind sharing a little bit of details about that for the audience here what you do in that role and and really what the you know core values of that institute are?
1: Yeah, it's mostly focused on training. I've been focused on community revitalization and natural resource restoration full-time now for about 20 years and for Pretty mo- most of the decade before that 20 years, when I was writing my first book, The Restoration Economy. So yeah, I've spent most of the last couple of decades in conferences and planning meetings and summits and all kinds of events, usually as a, either a workshop leader or a speaker on the subject of community revitalization and making places more vibrant and healthy. And as a result, you know, I normally hear about a dozen presentations for every one I actually give so I've probably heard more success and failure stories of uh, revitalization and resilience efforts than maybe anybody else in the world and I've been looking for commonalities you know what what are the what's usually present in the f- successes what's usually missing in the failures and my most recent book reconomics just came out last year documented uh, basically the the blueprint uh, uh, that I've gleaned from those experiences of here's how to put together a, a, a revitalization or resilience effort that's most likely to succeed because about 90% of them fail. It's really horrendous. And uh, Reconomics Institute takes that those insights and turns it into a certification program so people can actually become revitalization and resilience facilitators, what we normally just call re-facilitators. and uh, that helps them kind of plug that gap, you know, there's there's one big, huge missing gap in most community and regional and state revitalization efforts. And when people get certified through Reconomics Institute at reconomics.org, they, um, they can be the person who provides that uh, missing element to help boost local success. So, and when we're talking about
0: revitalization, just so we're clear here, so that's, you're, you're bringing new life to, to a community. Is that, is that how you'd probably best define that?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, the form of revitalization differs depending on the challenges of each individual community. I mean, some places are in a post-industrial mode where they're got, they've got tons of abandoned uh, industrial buildings and contaminated properties and rundown infrastructure. Other ones need to revitalize because they didn't plan their community properly and they allowed all kinds of big box stores and malls to spring up on their periphery, which sucked all the energy out of their downtown. So they're mostly focused on downtown revitalization efforts and historic building reuse and restoration efforts, that sort of thing. And other places allowed their natural environment to go into decline. Yeah, you know, There might've been a, a fishing port and now the, the fish are gone or they might've been focused on lumber and now their uh, the whole watershed has been denuded and they've got mudslides and all kinds of th- problems that come out of uh, clear cutting forests. And, and you mentioned that
0: you said, I think, 90 percent of those efforts would fail if someone wants to revitalize their community. A fair amount of them are going to fail. What what reason have you seen in your experience is is to blame for that failure storm?
1: Yeah, it is a huge uh, failure rate and it's not necessarily that they all fail outright, uh, but the, they fail to achieve their major objectives. So it might limp along as an effort for, for years and nobody actually declaring it a failure, but it really isn't accomplishing what it was meant to accomplish. And the primary thing is that they don't have a process. Uh, You know, if you talk to any business person who reliably produces anything, whether they're manufacturing cars or clothing or peanut butter or or uh, let's say uh, they're an agency producing, uh, you know, collecting tax revenues. You know, anybody who reliably produces any kind of end result knows you have to have a process for doing that. I mean, you're in Iowa. Talk to any farmer and they've got a process for. You know preparing their fields, planting their fields, harvesting their crops, and in some cases they actually do um, the finished drug uh, product project uh, product right there on their their farm, you know producing uh, stuff for retail sales and that's a process. Uh, the only people who don't seem to know that they need a process for producing things are the people who run community revitalization and resilience initiatives. There they just fall into this project by project mode of, Figuring well, if we just do a lot of good stuff, then revitalization mm. will magically appear. And uh, yeah, they've got the future of the community in their hands, and they're relying on magic. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so that's uh, that's what we documented. Uh, that's what I documented in my last book, Reconomics, and what we teach at at Reconomics Institute is a reliable process for producing revitalization and resilience.
0: That's awesome. Do Do you think that? Uh... Do you think that there's a particular strategy that we need to take to get out of this COVID-19 crisis that has basically, I mean, harmed economies really nationwide and worldwide? Is there any strategy that you think people should take as they're trying to develop their own personal success? They need the communities around them to be thriving to do that as well.
1: Yeah, it's funny you should uh, use the word strategy because that's really probably the single most common missing element of. Uh, of that process, strategy is a part of that uh, process I was talking about. And the fact is, everybody uses the word strategy, and hardly anybody actually knows what a strategy is. The, uh, you know, I was uh, I was in special forces a long time ago, and you know, we were just taught from day one the difference between a strategy and a tactic and a plan. Uh, you know, because our lives depended on it. But uh, you get into the world of community management and everybody's saying, oh, we've got a grand strategy for this and we've got a strategic plan for that. And I'll ask them, you know, talk to a mayor or city council or whatever. So what is your strategy for revitalizing this place? And they'll reach up onto a bookshelf and pull down a 300 page comprehensive plan and say, here it is. And I say, no, no, actually, that's a plan. What's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, right. So our strategy is to boost the economy and our quality of life and make it inclusive for everyone. And I say, no, that's a vision. You know, what's your strategy for actually overcoming the primary obstacles to achieving that vision? You know, a strategy is your path to success, uh, it's not a plan. It, it's it's something that you hold in your head. It has to be very brief. Something that can guide your decision making on a day to day basis. Most strategies are only a few sentences long. And uh, at that point, they realize they don't actually know what a strategy is. So, in, in your book,
0: Reconomics: The The Path to Resilient Prosperity, which you mentioned earlier, um, you go into the differences between a vision, strategy, and plan. Is that right? Is that 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 kind of juxtaposition as far as what those terms mean.
1: Yeah, exactly. People have to know what the what the elements of the process are before they can really understand the process. And by the way, to answer your question, uh, I got off on that strategy tangent a bit, but as far as COVID uh, economic recovery is concerned, most places would probably do better to use a revitalization strategy Probably the same revitalization strategy they should have used before COVID. The good thing, if you can say there's any good thing about the COVID situation, is that it's increased people's sense of urgency. And you know, there are a lot of people who have been kind of talking about revitalization for many, many years. And now there are resources available that weren't available. And uh, it, it, the so the the nature of the revitalization, the strategy itself won't change, but the timescale and the resources have changed. So we should be seeing a lot more revitalization efforts now than we were seeing pre COVID.
0: You think so? Think that you'll see more that more now after having COVID than than was you know, the focus has shifted a little bit, is is what you're saying?
1: yeah the urgency has shifted and uh, whether or not the success rate will go up will depend on whether people are actually doing things differently from what they did in the past and uh, i've i've seen some movement in that direction but for the most part, you're, you're still seeing people relying on projects, you know, saying, okay, we're gonna take this new federal money that's available and we're going to revitalize by improving our downtown streetscape or our transportation infrastructure or whatever. And those can all be elements of a revitalization program, but it, you know, the projects themselves are not gonna revitalize a place. I've seen cities that have spent billions on projects, uh, good projects, and still haven't gotten revitalization because they never actually had a process for producing that end result. Sure. Sure. And, and so let's talk a little
0: bit, you know, and all over encompassing this here. So success. So really part of my show is really how do people define success? So I, I do want to ask you that, but then I also want to take it and lead into people listening. If they want to chase personal success based on what you've learned, you know, in, in the, in the um, revitalization space. You know, we really want to tease out vision, strategy, and plan for them, if, if that's all right with you. So we'll start mm-hmm. it off here, Storm. I mean, how, how do you define success first and foremost?
1: Well, for me, it's just uh, improving my own personal quality of life while improving it for other people. So everything I focus on is you know, starts with re, you know, redevelopment, revitalization, regeneration, you know, reuse. Uh, and what what I found basically is that what we restore restores us, yeah. And what we revitalize revitalizes us. So that to me is is success. And you're paying it
0: forward. You're you're you're, you're benefiting future generations by doing those things and and by making a community that's vibrant. It's going to pass it along, and you're going to be giving back in that way too. So I, I commend you on that. That's very noble. Um, looking a little further into into the whole you know plan and strategy and vision behind it. What can you give the audience as far as advice for how how can you know what is a vision and a strategy and a plan? Because like you said, if, you know, you ask that community leader, what's your strategy? And they, they get their big book and that's actually their plan. So how can we stay on, on track with this and know what really are the steps that we need to take if we're chasing success in some specific avenue in our lives, how to really know and make sure that we're keeping those separate from one another?
1: Well, yeah, actually, the. Process I've been talking about for community revitalization can actually be applied to one's personal life and to one's organization. Uh, it's it's a very generic revitalization process. So you could use it to revitalize a nation. You could rev- use it to revitalize a company, and there are only six elements to it. Uh, now, the the secret sauce here. Uh, The the elements themselves are going to sound pretty straightforward and simple. The secret sauce is that each of these elements has to be regenerative in nature. And uh, that's where you need to read the books in order to understand exactly uh, what a regenerative uh, vision is what a regenerative strategy is so those six elements basically are you start with a program you have to have an ongoing program you can't approach revitalization from a a project by project stop start uh, mode you have to be able to build momentum and the only way you can build momentum to create more confidence in the future of your place or your company or or yourself uh, is by having an ongoing program that kind of works as a, uh, as a flywheel, you know? So each time you have a success, you've got this flywheel effect of your ongoing program that's moving you forward and makes the next step in the process easier. So once you've got your ongoing program that you're committed to, you need that vision. And basically a vision is a, a cohesive set of goals. So you figure out what, what is it you're trying to uh, achieve And you put all of those together in a cohesive way. And and that's your vision. And vision normally uh, comprises mostly nouns and adjectives because you're describing a a situation. Your strategy for achieving that vision is mostly verbs. These are the actions you have to take in order to, like I said before, overcome the obstacles to achieving that vision. Now, once you've got your program, your vision, your strategy in place, the last three elements are uh, policies, uh, partners, and projects. So uh, in a community situation or in a corporation, you have to make sure that your policies are not at odds with your vision and your strategy. A lot of communities will say, we want to revitalize our downtown, but their policies are still subsidizing sprawl. So they're pulling in two opposite directions. So you got to revamp your policies to make sure they're supporting your vision, your strategy. Uh, And then you need resources to actually do your projects. And the best source of resources, whether it's money or land or whatever kind of physical goods or personnel, uh, is partnerships. Public-public partnerships, public-private, private-private partnerships. But partnerships are the way to get things done, especially large things. And the last step, once you've got all that other stuff in place, is actual projects. That's where the real work, the action, takes place.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, Storm. And I know you mentioned earlier, you know, you got to read the books to, to know these definitions. I appreciate you touching on those. I mean, absolutely, anybody listening in the show notes of this episode, I mean, you'll find Storm's personal website as well as probably links. I'll have links to Amazon for each of the books. I think it'd be probably the easiest. Um but, but Storm, I want to ask you now, too, so you're, you're kind of your start and how you got into all of this. So I know you mentioned that you were in the armed services. So you, you were a, a Green Beret, I believe, with the U.S. Army. Is that correct?
1: Yep. Yeah. Many, many moons ago. <laughs>
0: yeah. What what got you from, from that into this revitalization and, you know, becoming an author? I mean, how did that, you know, change happen, I guess? Were you always interested in that or was that something that just kind of came about?
1: Um, well it the real roots are love of nature and uh but i've always been uh oriented towards big changes i'm not an incremental kind of guy uh so for instance in the three years before i became a green beret i was a hippie was <laughs> uh, yeah i spent uh, almost three years hitchhiking around the world across southern asia to india and nepal in search of truth and uh You know, a few months after getting back uh, from that, I was in the army uh, and I enlisted. I wasn't drafted. So, you know, I've always enjoyed, um, you know, huge, dramatic transitions, uh, both personally and uh, and making them happen at the community level. Uh, But that love of nature is really got what got me into um all this restoration stuff Uh, most people think of me as a community revitalization guy but i'm really you know my real roots are in natural resource restoration and that actually can be traced back to the army too because i was on a green beret scuba team and my love of scuba stayed with me after the army and in the late 80s there was this german scientist working in jamaica on a technology to actually restore jamaica's coral reefs because they had lost about 90 percent of their reefs by by then and on the surface that sounds kind of strange because i mean how do you restore something that takes thousands of years to aggregate Uh, but he actually was doing it and he put out a call for scuba divers to help him uh, set up these experiments on the ocean floor. So I went down there for a week and helped him out and witnessed these sites that had been total dead zones before in just a few months coming back to life in a dramatic way. And that's when it hit me that we don't have to be satisfied with so-called sustainable development. I mean, look around the world, uh, you know, this, this planet's in a total mess right now, you know, who wants to sustain this mess? Uh, we need to be revitalizing and restoring and undoing the damage that we've done. So that's when I I realized that we don't have to be satisfied with simply slowing down the rate of destruction. We can actually undo the destruction. And that uh, experience in Jamaica eventually led me to write my first book, The Restoration Economy. Wow.
0: That's a pretty crazy trajectory. Like you said, doing traveling and being in Nepal and like you know, going all over the place and then landing in the army. And I I just think, I mean, that's, a, that's really cool. I, I think that's a really cool story. And I think it makes me, I'm curious, you know, to ask you that. So somebody listening right now might have a similar love of nature as you. I mean, everybody, I feel like, you know, needs to appreciate nature and, and be thankful for what it provides us. But there might be some people listening that are really like, you know, this is describing my interests. And I want to ask you, what should they... Try to study if they're trying to to get into a career like that to restore our planet for a living. I know you've had you know some background lecturing at, at dozens of universities worldwide, um, including Harvard, actually. Mm-hmm. So I figure you probably have some some good insights as far as what you know didactic courses they might look at if they're interested in your field.
1: Yeah, uh, I've had tremendous uh, responses from young folks at universities all around the world. You know, I've lectured everywhere from China to Belgium to. Uh, you know, all over the United States, Mexico. And uh, the response has been the same everywhere, is that the young people are really hungry to get into a career that improves the world. You know, they've been told uh, pretty much from day one that the world's going down the, to- the, uh, the toilet and uh, they've got no bright future ahead of them, which is a really depressing thing to hear when you're a kid. So when I've been on the university campuses telling them that they can actually earn a great living restoring the world, you know, they respond uh, very enthusiastically. Uh, the problem is that most university courses are way behind the times. You know, they're still being taught old paradigms like sustainable development, which which is great. I mean, a lot of wonderful things have happened under that label, but, uh, you know, we've been pursuing sustainable development now for all, almost 40 years and the world's in far worse shape than it was 40 years ago. So obviously it's not working. Yeah. Uh, so we need uh, we to focus on what I call restorative development. And unfortunately, most universities don't have a lot of reoriented coursework. Uh, you know, university curricula are very slow to change. Uh, it takes decades sometimes, so uh, in most cases, what you're learning in university is, is obsolete while you're being taught it, <laughs> not, to, not to mention after you graduate. So that's why most professors have reading lists, so that they don't have to go through this long process of updating their curricula, which is very bureaucratic and slow. Uh, they can simply assign brand new books. Uh, and get the uh, get their students to read those, and that keeps them up to date. And so, my three books, the Restoration Economy, which came out in two thousand two, ReWealth that came out from McGraw Hill in uh, two thousand eight, and then Reconomics that came out last year, are used in a lot of sustainable development uh, coursework all around the world in urban planning things like that, in order to help the students. Uh, grasp this this whole new world of restoration, redevelopment, regeneration, revitalization, and apply it to whatever specific disciplines they're learning in school, whether it's civil engineering or architecture or urban planning, or even other things that you wouldn't think of as being related, like law. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people, for instance, one of our more recent graduates at Reconomic Institute... Uh, who's now a revitalization resilience facilitator had spent 20 years as a lawyer and had gotten totally burned out on the law and then realized that by becoming a revitalization resilience facilitator that he could actually uh, start applying his law background to, to restoring the planet
0: wow so find that connection later on didn't know that going in got burnt out of maybe the practice a lot but then found out later on that his interest tied back in so i that yeah. that Really speaks volumes to me. I know that. I mean, I, I'm trained as a pharmacist. I'm currently very early in my career, but I already can tell within myself that I, you know, have entrepreneurial desires and want to do, you know, more non traditional things. So I'm I'm curious, Storm. Do you have any insights to to how to help a person like that, whether their interests are more in the, you know, the space that you're in now? I mean, it sounds like though too. Your books though are pretty wide, pretty encompassing. If if those of you listening heard his second book, Re Wealth. Um, You know, published at McGraw Hill in two thousand eight. I think, I mean, that's a really unique book. I think, from looking at your background, you wouldn't necessarily think that. You know, the money side has got to come into it, but it's interesting that you wrote a book, you know, solely on that. So that that's that's pretty unique.
1: Yeah, and you don't actually have to get into redevelopment and revitalization and resilience as a profession in order to help revitalize the world. Uh, You know, as a pharmacist. You could simply dedicate a portion of your free time to helping your community. So, if you were to, you know, read re-economics or become a refacilitator, then you could simply show up at your city council meetings, and when they start talking about revitalization or resilience or redevelopment or whatever, you can be the one who can help guide them uh, towards a. Um, a a more effective process that's more likely to lead to success. And who knows, you might end up being a a pharmacist and the mayor of the town as a result. There you go.
0: Yeah. You never know where where your career might take you in other words. And and we've seen, you know, from, from your background, I mean, obviously you probably wouldn't have been able to plan out exactly how your life went. Do you think, I mean, or, or do you think you did plan it? I mean, I feel like it, looking at it from the surface level, it would seem like there were, you know, several twists and turns in there where you could have gone one way or the other way and and it just kind of naturally developed.
1: Yeah, I just followed my passions. I couldn't say there was ever any plan. Uh, Probably the closest I ever came to uh, succeeding as a result of a plan was simply when in 1996, I guess it was, I decided that in order to, revamp my life and get focused professionally on the things that I really wanted to be doing, that the best way to do that was to write a book uh, and to use that as a foundation as a credibility builder to say, look, you know, I know something about this subject. Yeah. And uh, so I ro- started writing The Restoration Economy in 1996, and it took me six years Uh, I'm a slow writer and I had a lot to learn because I didn't have any background in it. My only qualification for writing The Restoration Economy was the fact that I wrote it. But when I decided in 1996 uh, to write the book, I had just started a 9 to 5 job as as Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute, which was a technical society of about 16,000 architects and engineers and construction product manufacturers. And I figured having been self-employed before that maybe I could survive five or six years in a nine to five environment before I went crazy. So I needed an exit strategy and I figured writing a book would be the gr- best exit strategy. And um, so I came in to work every morning at six o'clock. And I wrote, researched and wrote uh, the book until nine o'clock. And then at nine o'clock I started my nine to five. And so every day for uh, a little over five years, I uh, made that three hours of progress towards that goal of writing my first book. So that's the closest I ever came to having a plan.
0: Yeah, that's really inspirational. And and from what I've heard other people talk about being an author and, and the writing process it's just that consistency, like you just said, for every, you know, every day for that many years, you're putting in three hours prior to your day job to get that done. And I'm sure some days more than others, you you would get, you know, a lot more done. And then the next day you wouldn't get very much done. And, you know, that's just all part of the process. And as a whole, you slowly progressed in, in that direction of your goal. So that I think that's really inspiring to hear from from that author's point of view.
1: Yeah. It's like Billy Crystal said in that comedy, I forget the title of it, but he was a writing teacher and uh, his his advice to people who claimed to be writers or who dreamed of being writers was simply writers write. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not writing on a daily basis, you're not a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And I had
0: a previous guest on the show that, that had kind of given the analogy of, I'm pretty sure it was Maya Angelou possibly who had said that if you want to write a book or, or start any type of writing project, you need to dedicate a certain amount of time to just sit in a chair and do nothing other than write. You can yep. solely, you could sit there and do absolutely nothing, but you can't do anything other than write. And he, he was saying, basically, you want to get it to the point where not writing is actually more uncomfortable than writing. Yep. So you get and then he's like, just get get something on the page each time. And, and over time, you'll start to slowly get better and better and better at it. And I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. With with probably what you saw throughout your years of writing that book, um, you started to kind of get in the flow. And I mean, you, you obviously you, you created the book and successfully launched it. And would you say six years? I mean, is that is that pretty standard for for a person's oh, no. first book?
1: Is no, that, you mean, can you can knock out a book in a year. It just depends on. How much you need to learn? I didn't know anything about the subject, so I had to do a lot of yeah. research in order to write about it. But if you're writing about something you already know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to knock out a book in a year. Yeah, and, uh, you know, these days publishing is a lot quicker. You know, you can just use Kindle Direct Publishing on Amazon and get a book out there uh, fairly quickly. In the old days, you had to spend a year or two just shopping your book around as a proposal to sure. find a publisher who's willing to publish it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Storm,
0: so kind of bringing this all back to kind of the core focus of my show. So I, what what I really wanted to do when I started this podcast was to find out, A, what people define success to be, but B, what keeps them driven towards that success? So in, in writing your book, I'm sure you've had, you know, driving forces in that way. But as a whole, is there a specific one piece in your life that has kept you driven towards success that you've chased?
1: Um. Well, it, there, there was a moment, uh, long, you know, about probably 25 years ago, when uh, I was involved in a nonprofit, my own nonprofit, uh, focused on restoring wildlife species, and I went down to the island of Dominica, and you know, to help out with some work they were doing there. And had rented a car and was driving around. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Uh, and not just physically, but the, the people, the food, everything about Dominica is just dramatic. You know, it's it's kind of the ultimate paradise. And uh, so I had rented a car and uh, in a break between uh, meetings, I was just driving around and got to the top of one mountain pass and was looking down over this gorgeous valley and with the ocean in the background. And, you know, I got out and I was standing there and suddenly hit me. Wow. I'm earning my living right now. I'm standing here in paradise. And this is, this is my way of life. This is my profession, uh, is being in paradise for a living, you know, it's just, it, it was one of those peak moments that filled me with such ecstasy that uh, I just committed myself at that point to repeating those sorts of experiences as often as possible.
0: And chasing your passion. You mentioned that earlier, that, that was yeah. instrumental right. to your career path in life was, was you just, ch- you kept chasing what interests you and drove you to be happy. And I think that that's, that's something we can all aspire to do. So I think
1: and it's kind of, kind of got back to my old hippie days of hitching over to India and Nepal, you know, looking for the truth, you know, I was just looking for those moments of ecstasy where I felt like I was just at one with the universe.
0: Yep. Chase, chasing that, uh, oneness with, with the world as how how you were doing now with, you know, revitalization of communities. I mean, you're, you're making people feel more whole and connected as one to their communities too. So I think that that's really inspiring that you're giving back, you know, what really drove you to pursue it in the first place. Yep. Well, Storm, that's fantastic. And really can't thank you enough for being on here. Can't thank you enough for sharing your insights as far as how people can be more successful, both on that micro scale in their own lives and then on the macro scale in their communities and and in their nation and, and world. So thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Eric Mueller show today. And if anybody wants to contact you, his personal website, is that probably the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah, stormcunningham.com has got links to all my other websites and resources and books and that sort of stuff.
0: Sounds great. We'll be, t- be sure to tag that in the show notes. And if anybody's interested in any of his books, we'll definitely have those in there as well. And, and you can read about, uh, read about Storm Cunningham on his website.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric. You did a great job. That's one of the uh, most enjoyable uh,
0: podcasts I've done. Well, Storm, thank you so much, man. That that really means a lot to me. Starting off early, you'll you'll be probably one of the first twenty episodes on the show here.
1: Yeah, good job. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Storm.